From Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents The Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting edge technology, and the colored shavings. Welcome back to The Dairy Show. I'm your host, Katie Schmidt. And before we meet this week's guest, I want to thank the sponsor of this episode of The Dairy Show, Paul Mueller Company. At Paul Mueller Company, their craftsmen and women build innovative cooling and storage equipment for dairy farmers, making an impact across the globe. There are now more than 72,000 milk coolers in roughly 125 countries around the world, so farmers can keep their products fresh and their inventory strong. If you are attending World Dairy Expo in just a few short weeks, you're going to want to make sure you stop by and see their booth in the exhibition hall, their booths 1807 through 1909. Paul Mueller Company is going to have all of their great products on display for you to touch, see, feel, uh, and of course, those experts on hand to answer any questions you might have. You can mark down their booth as a must-see in World Dairy Expo's mobile event app that is available in the App Store and Google Play. Uh, outside of the must-see list, there's also going to be interactive maps, there's custom scheduling, there is real-time results from the Dairy Cattle Show, and even search functions in the pavilions and the cattle tents. So if you're looking for those special cows or special exhibitors there, those are searchable now as well as in the trade show. Joining us this week for our episode is Don Bennick with North Florida Holsteins, located in the northern peninsula of Florida. So welcome to the podcast, Don. Well, thank you very much. Uh, enjoy uh, uh, chatting with you again and certainly uh, enjoyed your visit when you were here. Yeah. So I, for our listeners, I did get to visit Don's farm a couple years ago when my brother was down in Florida. So this is a fun chance for me to catch up with a friend. But Don, let's start by having you introduce yourself for our listeners and just share a little bit about your background in dairy. We moved down here 41 years ago from New York State, uh, largely because at that time uh, uh, had enough uh, business conflicts at home as far as challenges of uh, uh, one uh, or both of them interfering with each other and had to make the choice and uh, was down here and very much liked the area. The milk market at that time uh, was very strong and uh, uh, we, we found an agricultural area that uh, very much appealed to us. And what does agriculture look like in Florida? You obviously mentioned the milk markets were part of the reason that moved you down there, but what does agriculture as a whole look like in your area? Yeah, and it, it's changed dramatically uh, from when we came, but the principles are the same. Probably Florida has the most diverse agriculture of any state except California. Uh, there's uh, just, I mean, of course, it's famous for its citrus. Uh, uh, all the development uh, that's going on uh, uh, results in a real strong demand for sod, lots of uh, various kinds of vegetables and uh, other fruits seasonally, uh, not, not year-round, but uh, uh, lots of things like tomatoes and broccoli and asparagus and sweet corn and, uh, I don't know if I said watermelon, but 
a lot of really seasonal uh, type crops uh, that people can fit markets for. We're uh, very uh, well known for having uh, massive numbers of uh, uh, mama cows, beef cattle. Uh, in fact, uh, I think of the five largest ranches in the U.S., two or three of them are in Florida, if you go by number of mama cows. Uh, we're not known as a feedlot state, although in the time we've been here, we've seen feedlots come and go. Currently, they're moderately popular again. What's the regular growing season for some of those like fruits and vegetables in Florida? Because I'm guessing it's different than maybe what we would see here in Wisconsin. Yeah, and really, if you go south, uh, for instance, the folks in south uh, in the south can grow grass and other things year-round. Uh, the citrus would be pretty much uh, uh, in the winter, but uh, uh, and some of it starting as early as September and October, and going as late as uh, March and April, and and of course a, a lot is. Uh, for uh, direct consumption, but the massive amount uh, goes to the juice plants and uh, uh, that would get uh, particularly heavy from November through March or April. So then how does dairy fit into this picture of agriculture in Florida? Well, in the, we've always considered, uh, and, and when we, at the time we moved here, that we basically supplied the needs of the people that were here, that uh, be, being a peninsula and being a, at a significant distance from the major dairy areas, and at that time it was particularly Wisconsin. Of course, Wisconsin is still very prominent in dairy, but uh, some of the areas that have become prominent now uh, were not, but Florida, uh, attempted to pretty much supply the milk to the consumers here, but uh, was really seasonal then as the schools uh, opened and closed and as the snowbirds uh, came and went. Uh, it, uh, so there was, and, and, and with our climate, there was uh, both a significant difference in uh, uh, demand and a significant difference in in our production, uh, not always uh, or a high percentage of the time, not necessarily producing it when we needed it. So how are you fixing that demand need now? What does that market look like? Are you still a fluid market primarily down there? Uh, yes, uh, although we had a time uh, particularly when NAFTA was wiped out and other things where uh, lots of milk uh, came into the state, we went from being probably the best milk market in the U.S. to being the worst. Uh, and certainly the last four years have been bad, and but it's been bad probably not very, it's not been very good uh, into the 2000s. We think it's improving uh, quite a lot now. Uh, and we have lost a lot of producers, but uh, the producers uh, 
individual farms have gotten as a group considerably larger and have got uh, uh, dairymen that are capable of producing a lot more milk per cow over time. Speaking of, let's walk through North Florida Holsteins. What does the farm look like? Just take us as if we were going on a tour. Uh, we produce uh, and raise our own replacements. Uh, we raise uh, a significant quantity of our forages. And uh, this would be real different than Florida dairies as a group would be thought of in the past. And even uh, uh, even still today, uh, uh, many uh, have stopped raising their replacements or they're sent out to be raised. And uh, so we, we'd have the replacement infrastructure uh, and uh, uh, we would not be buying any, any replacements. Uh, but uh, our crop growing program is very important to us. Uh, as far as running our operation. And then uh, uh, we house all of our milking cows, are uh, uh, in free stalls. Uh, the great bulk of them are in tunnel ventilation, which is a huge help uh, for uh, our, our climate. Yeah. And speaking of tunnel vent, that's obviously a heat abatement um, initiative or program. Is that pretty standard for Florida farms to find tunnel vents or what are other producers doing in your area to, to fight the heat? Yeah, it's probably still, uh, yeah, it definitely still in the minority, but uh, I think the bulk of the people that have gone to it have been uh, uh, pretty successful with it. Uh, there are certain things uh uh, as far as making sure your building structures are going to last and that the the ventilation is really sufficient and things like that. Uh, if people don't get that done, uh, they don't or they're not happy with uh, with tunnel ventilation. But on, on the whole, uh, uh, it's been very good to us. Uh, and, and we experimented a bit with doing things various ways. And with some of the ways we did it were mistakes, but have generally been able to correct that. And uh, uh, on the whole, uh, it's been very good. But most, uh, almost of the dairies that are left, and we, we had a huge number go out in the last four years because I say it's the worst time uh, we've ever seen to milk cows here and also Georgia saw the same thing. Basically the free stalls dominate the industry now, uh, fence bu or, uh, feed bunk sprinklers and fans. Uh, you'd see it almost all dairies uh, with significant uh, production levels. So when you were looking at the barn structure, why was the tunnel vent chosen and not, you know, a cross vent or a naturally ventilated barn or, or other options? Well, at the time we were going to tunnel, there really cross vents uh, 
in your part of the world and others were just kind of coming in, but uh, it, uh, at the level, at the speed that we need to move air, it's not practical to do it with the cross fence. They're just too wide. Uh, we, we need to be able to have an airspeed 10 to 14 miles an hour. Uh, most of the cross fence are into that two to five range. And uh, in our air is particularly heavy uh, because of our humidity. And, and we do do some misting of the air to get evaporative cooling. And uh, to do all that, you need pretty aggressive fan speed uh, that's considerably more than uh, most cross fence would be able to do. So outside of heat, what are some of the other challenges that you face that are unique to your area? Yeah, you probably there's, there's three there's three major ones, and you you've hit uh, on one: the heat and humidity, the mud that can go with that if you don't manage it, and uh, uh, forage quality. Uh, the more humidity you get, the more heat you get. Uh, the less control you have over your forages, uh, you, you drop your quality uh, significantly. Uh, and, and that includes uh, uh, both our corn silage and our grasses and other things. And we are uh, growing some alfalfa with a, uh, at least a moderate level of success. We're learning and improving it as, as time goes on. Uh, this, this working on uh, getting a lot more digestibility in the fiber of our forages has, uh, has been critical. Uh, the freestall barns have helped uh, massively with the mud control. And uh, uh, we, we, we talked about uh, the, the cooling with the uh, uh, rap rapid moving air, the direct sprinkling of the cows uh, and uh, the evaporative cooling uh, would cover the major uh, uh, changes that have helped fit uh, the circumstances here. Sure. So what are you doing for forage management or harvest that is helping you negate some of those challenges or how are you still harvesting good feed? The University of Florida and others, particularly the university, has been very helpful in developing uh, uh, forages uh, that uh, adapt to this climate better. Uh, and some of the uh, Bermuda and Bermuda stargrass uh, crosses, uh, and, and they change uh, uh, with time. Probably the one that's been most popular Lately in northern Florida is one called Tifton 85. I think we've got one that's going to replace it now. But it, it uh, was a cross that they worked on and it compared it with a variety of species. And, but it, uh, uh, it, it has its challenges, but you can, uh, with frequent cutting, and we, our intention is to cut it every 24 days. And uh, we can do that beginning in May uh, through the end of October. Really, the, the real close cutting interval and uh, 
we pretty much have to put up most of it as silage. We tend to bag our grasses and uh, pile our corn silages. We're right in the middle of, of corn silage now. We uh, uh, just had a hurricane threatened, uh, uh, was supposedly coming through yesterday. We did get a significant amount of water, but not huge winds, but we were forced to shut down but uh, not letting ambient water, in other words, rainwater, uh, touch the silage at any stage uh, once it's chopped is, is really critical. And, and covering, uh, if you're gonna get a rainstorm through and you're, you're, you're in the process of, of uh, making your pile, you gotta make sure you cover it up so that you don't get that uh, rain, which totally changes the fermentation uh, of the mass. Wow. And for our listeners, so they understand the timeline here, we're recording this uh, the second week of July, and you're going to be listening to this in August. So we're about a month ahead on uh, the recording process, but they did have a tropical storm last night. So Don, what are some of the opportunities then if, if we look at why you dairy farm in Florida? Uh, versus New York, where you originally been uh, outside of the milk market that was extremely strong up until about four years ago. Yeah, it uh, particularly at the time we moved, uh, prices were much higher for milk here. Although there was some control on your production, it uh, so it 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 gave you that incentive, but you and. But at that time, dairymen as a group were less sophisticated. And again, I'm talking 40 plus years ago. Uh, they, the great bulk of what a cow was fed was uh, the dairyman purchased from a feed mill, would feed some rolls of rather low quality hay to go with what came from the feed mill. Uh, and it was a very, and they bought all their replacements and in many cases, and uh, uh, and it was a very easy lifestyle, and uh, they sure got in a lot of hunting and fishing, but it was not a way to make cow's milk uh, particularly well, but with the high prices, uh, they were able to make it work, but once the uh, our, our dairy market uh, was uh, was damaged. We we lost that group of folks. There's very, very, very few dairymen left to feed what we call a one-shot feed anymore. They're either partially growing their forages or have arrangements uh, to do that. Now, technically, we we feed a lot of corn silage, relatively speaking. Uh, we, we're putting up 80-some thousand ton of corn silage now, but different from what we uh, did previously, we buy all that corn, pay so much a ton for it, uh, dumped in our silo, we do the packing and the covering and that kind of thing, but we have a significant presence of, of peanut growers here in the county folks that grow like five to 15,000 acres of peanuts. And they love corn as a rotation, uh, much as uh, farmers in your area like a, 
a corn soybean rotation. They love a corn peanut rotation and they don't necessarily have the markets for their corn. And, uh, and of course we were able to take it off in June and early July, which, uh, removes, uh, their, uh, uh, conflicts with peanut harvest. If they were, uh, going to combine the corn, they'd be having to do quite a lot of it at the same time they harvest peanuts. And uh, that's a very massive operation by itself without adding anything to it. So, and, and so we instead concentrate on growing uh, these improved grasses and alfalfa and other things. We tend to bag those uh, and uh, we tend to uh, uh, put the corn in large piles. So I also want to talk about the cows. As your farm's name would allude to, you have Holsteins. Tell us about the herd um, and what kind of traits you're breeding for today. Uh, we uh, uh, are very heavily into production and health traits. Uh, and uh, we definitely... Uh, are not in the bigger, talk, taller, sharper world. We consider all three of those serious faults. And uh, we like cattle. Uh, we, we want uh, cattle that uh, uh, give a lot of milk. And uh, uh, we expect our two-year-olds to average in the 90s. And many of them make 120 to 130 pounds. We expect... Uh, uh, we're, we're getting more and more components uh, uh, bred into our cattle, uh, and but but our cat we're trying to get to a moderate-sized cow that holds her body condition year-round. We like that kind of cow uh, that uh, that's that's given a hundred pounds, but looks like she's given fifty. She just does it with no effort at all. She's not beating herself up. She's not thin uh, and and she can have a lot of resistance to disease and and that kind of thing. Be fertile, uh, uh, be easy to work with, uh, uh, fit our stalls uh, and uh, uh, just be practical uh, uh, and profitable. So when I was down there visiting, I remember around your conference room table and we were talking about breeding for cheese merit and for proteins that make better cheeses. Is that still something that you're doing or are there other traits that you're looking at now in the future that you're trying to breed for someday down the road? Yeah, that would have been in that discussion and and this would have been, uh, uh, you know, we, we would have obviously been having a discussion when you were here on the uh, beta and kappa caseins, and we still, we, we use only A2, A2 bulls. Uh, we do not use any bulls that would have a uh, kappa casein E uh, because of the uh, interference uh, with cheese quality that it can have. And we are, uh, we're doing that we, we have no idea where our market's going here. Uh, and we want to be set up uh, and versatile with anything that comes along. And 
uh, even though you sort off some really popular animals, uh, we feel we're keeping ourselves out of getting into a trap. And uh, uh, we sometimes have had to turn away some bulls we kind of like. With time, uh, uh, we've been able to uh, stay with the casings we like, but that's all. but the whole fertility, livability, stamina, and and uh, those kind of things uh, are are very high on our list, uh, uh, along with levels of production and high components. So one of the other things that you do is work with the University of Florida quite a bit. Tell us what that relationship looks like and what some of those research projects are that they're utilizing your herd to do. Uh, we would work, the, the three departments we would work with the most at the University of Florida would be the veterinary college, the animal science department, and uh, essentially the agronomy folks. Uh, the, the veterinary group would be working largely with our disease prevention, vaccination program, and fertility. Our uh, Animal science would be working with uh, the digestibility of various types of rations and uh, largely ration and some of the various products uh, uh, that, that have been tried out. In fact, the Immunity Plus product that you hear out here was actually developed here with some of the uh, veterinarian from Canada uh, that uh, was on staff here at the vet school, uh, put that together. And then our agronomy people are very, we talked about trying to make more digestible and very healthy grasses and alfalfa varieties that would grow here. Uh, we have to really give a lot of credit uh, uh, to uh, our agronomy department for that. And they will uh, grow uh, substantial numbers of varieties and and also work with uh, uh, some species uh, uh, that uh, we, we can uh, grow in the winter. Why do you choose to open up your farm in this way? I'm imagining that there's a lot of information shared that's pretty open book for those folks to be able to do their research. So I guess why... Why invest in that relationship and why maintain that relationship? You know, a lot of it is, of course, that I personally like it and our people personally like it. But, you, you know, you, it would be real arrogant if we were to say that these people uh, were coming here to get our ideas. What we really end up doing is trading ideas with these people. These people are here because they want to learn new things but they're that kind of people. So in turn, we're learning from them as we're going through why we're doing this. And they'll be asking that, and what, well, what would you do for this? And I'm sure we get uh, as much brought to us as is taken away, but it just gets us into uh, uh, deeper discussions as uh, I, I was real happy to do uh, with your family when they were here. They were uh, obviously uh, not here for Disney World. They were here to talk about uh, our industry and uh, and what each of us can do to 
improve our individual operations. Yeah, my, my family is like most dairy farming families. We don't vacation without going to see cows. Um, so uh, we were very grateful to be able to come to your farm, Don. And as we kind of run out of time for this chat, is there anything else that listeners from across the country and around the world might find interesting about dairying in Florida or at North Florida Holsteins? Yeah, there, there's certainly, uh, I would have said 10 years ago, there's probably all the dairy farms we can handle here. There's too much milk. There's, uh, there's potential for people who would like to dairy farm here now. Our co-ops are wanting more milk than they're getting. All the, the uh, things that we hear about now as far as transportation, truck availability, truck driver availability, uh, even fuel costs to get things in here are making it. So the advantage is, is to make milk here again uh, and uh, we're, we're short on milk again. So there we have it. If you're looking to expand, Florida is looking for dairy farmers. And if you uh, want to connect with Florida dairy farmers, Expo is a great place to do that. Um, Don is a, a regular attendee of Expo. But for the meantime, we're going to wrap up this chat. So thank you so much, Don, for being a part of the Dairy Show today. Well, thank you, Katie, for the opportunity and uh, wish you all the best to your family and the group of wonderful folks that you work with there. Thank you very much. Yeah, we'll see you this fall. Again, we want to say thank you to the sponsor of this episode of The Dairy Show, Paul Mueller Company. Established in 1940, Paul Mueller Company builds the equipment that cools, heats, and stores the products you use every day, like milk, beer, water, and medicine. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Dairy Show. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe wherever you are listening to us today. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends about how much you are enjoying The Dairy Show. We would love to have them join us as well. And last but not least, if you have any comments for us, send us an email at wde at wdexpo.com. We would love to hear from you. 